Christ is born, glorify him. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up again this evening with step number seven on joy-making mourning or compunction or what is often defined as well as panthos. And so it's uh, a repentant soul turning back to God. And, uh, and John has discussed in great detail uh, sort of what goes through the mind and the heart of an individual, the, the depths of this compunction, the tears that it produces, and the cleansing effect that it has upon the mind and the heart, as well as a renewal of intimacy with the Lord. And, uh, and so we're about three quarters of the way through this step, and we're picking up on, with paragraph 49 on 116. When I consider the actual nature of compunction, I'm amazed at how that which is called mourning and grief should contain joy and gladness interwoven within it, like honey in the comb. What then are we to learn from this? That such compunction is, in a special sense, a gift of the Lord. There is then in the soul no pleasureless pleasure, for God consoles those who are contrite in heart in a secret way, but as an inducement to most splendid mourning and profitable sorrow, let us hear a soul-profiting and most pitiful story. And so this is not something that we produce on our own or by our own efforts, that this is something that is a gift from God and that he produces in a secret way within the human heart that has been moving, moved, I'm sorry, to contrition over, over one's sins. And, uh, and so he's going to offer us the story now uh, to, to help clarify it. All right, number 50. There lived here a certain Stephen who embraced an eremitic and solitary life and had spent many years in monastic training. His soul was especially adorned with tears and fasting and was bedecked with other good achievements. He had a cell on a slope of this holy mountain where the holy prophet and seer of God Elias once lived. But later, this renowned man resolved upon a more effective, austere, and stricter repentance and went to a place of hermits called Sidin. There he spent several years in a life of great austerity. This place was bereft of every comfort and was almost untrodden by the foot of man, being about 70 miles from the fort. Towards the end of his life, the elder returned to his cell on the holy mountain, where he had two extremely pious disciples from Palestine who took care of the elder's cell. Having passed a few days there, he fell into illness from which he died. On the day before his death, uh, excuse me, he went into ecstasy of mind, and with open eyes, he looked to the right and left of his bed, and as if were, he were being called to account by someone, in hearing of all the bystanders, he said, yes, indeed, that is true, but that is why I fasted for so many years. And then again, yes, it is quite true, but I wept and served the brethren. And again, no, you are slandering me. And sometimes he would say, yes, it is true, 
Yes, I do not know what to say to this, but in God there is mercy, and it was truly an awful and horrible sight, this invisible and merciless inquisition, and what was most terrible, he was accused of what he had not done. How amazing. Of several of his sins, the Hesychist and Hermit said, I do not know what to say to this, although he had been a monk for nearly 40 years and had a gift of tears. Alas, alas, where then was the voice of Ezekiel to say to the demons, as I find you, I will judge you, saith God. Truly, he could make no such defense. Why? Glory be to him who alone knows. And some as before the Lord told me that even fed, uh, that he even fed a leopard from his hand in the desert. And while being thus called to account, he was parted from his body, leaving us in uncertainty as to his judgment or end or sentence or how the trial ended. And so you're going to have to excuse me. I have to go let the dog out. He just ran his bell. So talk amongst yourselves. I'll be right back. <laughs> Sorry about that. That stinker. I knew he was going to do that to me. All right. So a, a powerful story. And you know, a lot of times within the monastic literature, we find this, uh, this kind of experience take place. And even among some of the Eastern Orthodox writers, there's a belief in something called the toll houses. It's not a particular doctrine. Uh, that is one is required to believe. And yet it is this, this kind of examination that takes place and that one is even put to the test by demons as one passes from this world. And this is the sort of essence that we seem to pick up from this story that this hermit, even though he had lived a very holy life, and lived a life of virtue, is being put to the test, questioned about the things that he had done throughout the course of his life. And uh, the, John writes that, you know, the, the frightening thing about it is that he's accused of doing things that he had not actually done. And so his faith is tested right up to the last minute uh, before his death, uh, how we, will he cast himself upon the mercy of God when faced with the uncertainty of his own actions throughout the course of his life? You know, had he been guilty of certain things that uh, he could not see clearly or had put out of his mind and out of his heart? And, uh, and so it, it, it is a striking story, and I, I think it serves for us uh, as an example of what leads a person into this kind of deep contrition, this awareness of the fact that we will have to uh, give an account for our life, and that the also that the demons uh, do not rest e even to the moment of our death, in this in the sense of putting us to the test. And so the depth of our faith, the depth of our trust in God and his mercy, the, the depth of our contrition uh, has to be complete. We have to be striving throughout the course of our life because up to the last moment, our, our faith could, we, even if our faith is deep, we can undergo a great trial. 
And this is not the first time that we've read certain things. In the Evergatinos, we've come across it, and we'll come across it again many times in, in John's writing, uh, that the, the demons can be relentless in trying to shake that faith of even the greatest of, of souls. And, uh, and so to seek to live our lives in humility and in the full light of truth then becomes essential for us that what will give us comfort in that moment uh, if we are put to the test, other than the fact that we've sought to live as fully as we can in, in the light of, of the truth, or that we've sought to live a life of repentance, or that we've embraced a penitential lifestyle for the things that we have committed uh, against God or against our neighbor, that we've done penance as he describes that, uh, that when he has to acknowledge, yes, this is true, uh, but in God there is mercy. And, uh, and then he said, you know, I wept and served the brethren. So, you know, throughout the course of his life, uh, his penitential, his penance, his contrition simply wasn't in the mind that he, he really sought to uh, undergo conversion of heart by uh, altering the way that he lived his life, but also taking upon himself specific penances in order to, pur to purify the heart. And so I think it sheds a kind of light upon uh, our life and the way we enter into penitential seasons and the way that we look at penance in general and the spirit of repentance that we can turn these things into uh, abstract ideas or things that we distance our, help, our hearts from, even as we are doing them. And I was reading over the gospel for the, the Feast of Theophany, and it's uh, the you know, baptism of the Lord and uh, John engaging the scribes and the Pharisees that are coming out uh, to see what's going on and perhaps to be baptized by John. And he calls them a brood of vipers. Who warned you of the coming fire? That they come in a kind of pro forma way. They're following the crowds. They don't want to deny John because he's so popular in the eyes of the people. And so they, they, they come out with the people. And John sees you know, what's going on within their hearts, that it's a farce. And, uh, you know, as I've been, you know, praying in preparation, you know, for, for the feast, uh, the, the thought is, is that you know, we have to put ourselves in the position of the scribes and the Pharisees as we meditate upon that gospel. You know, we can be those coming out to John uh, with a genuine sense of repentance and sorrow for our sins, but we can also imitate very easily in our lives, the scribes and the Pharisees. We can make ourselves a brood of vipers that enter into a kind of penance as fire insurance, as it were, to give ourselves an assurance of heart that we are doing something that is necessary on a religious level to make us right with God, but it doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are true. And what is so sobering about this story is that we know 
that the hermit's life was true, that he had given himself over to a life of deep prayer, of penance, of silence. And yet in those last moments, he still, that faith is still put to the test. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, where, where is our hope and trust in the mercy of God going to come from? Are there ways that we might be tempted uh, because of present uh, negligence or lack of zeal for the Lord or a lack of compunction of what we've been reading about in this step? Any, any thoughts about the story at all? So paragraph number 51, just as a widow bereft of her husband and having only uh, an only son finds in him her sole comfort after the Lord. So for a soul that has fallen, there is no other consolation at the time of its departure, but the toils of fasting and tears. So interesting, this is what I've been talking about that, you know, what, what is going to be our consolation other than genuine tears of sorrow and the fasting and the penance that one has done? And one might add to this our service and care of the poor, that they become our advocates before the throne of God. Uh, you know, interceding on our behalf, but because of the love and the mercy that we've shown. So what is there in our life that will give us consolation? And I think the image that John uses, you know, that an only son for one who's a widow is going to be perhaps the, the sole consolation. And so when we are left to ourselves at that moment uh, before our death, what is going to be our one consolation? What, what is going to you know, cry out from our hearts, but also uh, give us a sense uh, of, of confidence in the mercy and the love of God, that we've lived a life that would be pleasing to him. Any thoughts about this? Because it's a very challenging vision. And, you know, we, we preach about the mercy and love of God, and so does John. And as we go further into this text, he warns about falling into despair and despondency, and that the demons will seek to do that to us as well. But sometimes we can be very, I don't know what the word would be for it, casual in, uh, and uh, in our thinking about the mercy of God and even how it comes to us, as if our, the, the state of our own minds and our hearts is of no matter. And it's hard to read a story like this and the statements of John and hold on to that, that notion. Anthony. How does one distinguish the right amount of compunction versus demonic despondency due to slander? Well, I think that's the difficult thing to do. And I think that's why John finds it such a frightful story that the demons uh, know everything that there is uh, about our life from observing what we have done or not done and learn 
the you know almost infinite ways that a soul can be tripped up and that they are very patient to the last moment uh and and so you know how does one distinguish the right amount and i think it's only by the mercy of god you know that that's something that's bestowed upon the mind and the heart a peace that he gives at that moment that is a reflection of where our minds and our hearts uh you know have been and where they've been directed throughout the course of our life and so it's for this reason that we have to take our spiritual life ever so seriously that uh that knowing the fact that we can be tempted to those last moments and that we can't be self-assured about our own actions and behaviors that we we don't want to provide as it were material through which we can be tempted and you know even here you know in at the end of the story where he has no defense for something he has to cast himself upon the mercy of god for it and uh, and one has to be in a living relationship with god and have that level of trust to be able to do that that even though our actions might condemn us or there might be uncertainty within our own hearts about how we've lived our life uh it's arises out of our relationship with god that we can in that moment cast ourselves upon his mercy with a kind of confidence and hope in him uh but we cannot provide it for ourselves any more than we can produce this kind of compunction outside of the grace of god and outside of it being his gift and so it adds a kind of urgency i think to our spiritual life and how we enter into it because i think that's often our temptation i will put off the moment of conversion to another day to another moment when i have a kind of freedom of mind where i'm not uh you know sort of obsessed with the things of my day-to-day life and responsibilities and so we can subtly distract ourselves from the state of our own hearts our relationship with god the depth of our prayer uh our a penitential lifestyle and we can become minimalist in the way that we engage in that relationship with god as well as minimalist in the ascetic life and i think what this story wakes us up to is that yes you know we can trust in the mercy and love of god we have the cross we have the eucharist we have all the things that god has given to us as well as the spirit dwelling within our hearts and yet we are still subject to our own weakness temptation trial and uh and so we can have no illusions about the fact that we can be tempted to the last moment of of our life to the last breath and so an unceasing prayer we begin to see you know i think it comes into focus as well for us that it becomes like our breath knowing that this is the case we would be calling out to god and for his grace and for his mercy at every moment we would want this to shape our heart and uh shape the way that we view reality our existence within this world 
that I think living in a fallen world, I think part of you know, the thing that we struggle with is the distraction by all the things around us that hold such appeal and draw our attention away from God. And they don't have to be uh, obvious evils. You know, they can be rather benign. And even as we've heard in so many of the texts, good things, and yet nonetheless distract us from God. Any other thoughts or comments? So let, let's follow John along a little bit further here, because, you know, certainly this is a really challenging story. But uh, I think John does clarify in the paragraphs to follow, uh, you know, this vision of compunction that gives way to joy. Okay. What, uh, we're on 52. Such ones never sing nor do they loudly cry out to themselves in hymns, because such things dissipate mourning. And if you hope to summon it by such means, then you are a long way from achieving your aim. For mourning is the conditioned pain of a soul on fire. So I found it to be a rather odd and curious saying, this idea of not singing. And you know, there is something that is deeply consoling, certainly about singing. And we sing constantly and chant constantly within the life of the church. And I think John is putting it forward here, though, is that we don't want it to dissipate mourning uh, of this sort, of compunction, that we aren't seeking to distract ourselves from this pain of heart that comes with the, the realization of our sin. And so John tells us at the end of the paragraph, for mourning is conditioned by a pain of, a pain of a soul on fire, that this is a soul that is on fire for love of God and is on fire with a sense of hatred for one's sin and seeking to have that sin be consumed uh, or, uh, you know, the image has often been washed away through one's tears. Uh, but John mixes the image here and says, you know, it, it is a soul on fire for love of God. And we don't want to dissipate that, uh, that fire, that desire for God, uh, simply to distract ourselves from the pain that we feel in our heart. That there is a pain in the spiritual life that can be something that's important and positive, that we feel the sting, if you will, of our own sin, of our own lack of yearning for God, of our negligence in the spiritual life. And when we no longer feel that sting, when we've anesthetized ourselves, uh, then we find ourselves in a problematic position spiritually, because then what is it that is going to move us to to repentance, to compunction. Number 53. In many people, mourning has been the precursor of blessed dispassion, and it prepared, plowed, and discarded sinful matter. So, 
mourning has been a precursor to blessed dispassion. So a freedom from the passions so that it does something to the heart that would be akin to plowing a field and turning over uh, the hardened soil, if you will, that, that comes through our, our passions or our pride, that mourning uh, sort of does the work that is necessary in order to free us from the grip that the passions have upon us. And so with another image, powerful image here, John uh, draws us into this insight as to why we, we do not want to restrain it when it has been given to us as a gift. Number 53, I'm sorry, number 54. One skilled practicer of this virtue told me frequently, as soon as I tried to surrender myself to vanity or anger or overeating, the thought of mourning protested within me and said, do not be vain or I shall leave you. And so, too, at the urging of other passions, and I would say to the thought, I shall never disobey you until you present me to Christ. So an image of someone whose heart has been so formed by this compunction that when presented uh, by a particular passion, that he's not willing uh, to give himself over to it that the mourning that he has within his heart becomes the lens, if you will, through which he, he views everything in his life, including these temptations that come to him. And so it becomes a, a kind uh, of guard. It allows him to see the approach of the passions and to deflect them uh, by, by this virtue that has been deeply rooted within the heart. So, you know, again, we see it's a protective kind of virtue for us. It's not about being sad. It's not about making ourselves miserable. It's about protecting us from the onslaught of our own passions as well as the temptations that come from the evil one. Number 55, the abyss of mourning has seen comfort and purity of heart has received illumination. Illumination is an ineffable activity which is unknowingly perceived and invisibly seen. Comfort is the solace of a sorrowing soul, which like a soul, I'm sorry, like a child, at once both whimpers to itself and shouts happily. Divine succor is the renewal of a soul depressed by grief which in a wonderful way transforms painful tears into painless ones. So this image is coming forward for us now that yes, there is mourning that, that comes to us through this, but at the same time, God is comforting. And the image of, uh, of a child whimpering in that sorrow, but at the same time being comforted uh, is the image of a soul that is deeply immersed in this compunction and yet being comforted by the grace of God and the healing that comes through it. So, Rachel writes, 
it seems like he means something even deeper than not distracting oneself from pain of heart, or just as you are alluding to, he's taking it even further. Some songs can console or enhance one's sorrow uh, that comes from the passionate nature or natural temperament. When mourning is composed, when the mourning is composed, hidden and allowed to go deep within by waiting on our Lord, not escaping into a sorrow that consoles, but waves of that abyss wash over one, wash over one. So, right, you know, I think there are ways that we can try to pull ourselves out of this kind of mourning. And, uh, and again, it doesn't have to be something that's obviously sinful, it can be benign, and it can be something that is genuinely comforting. Where was I? This abyss of mourning, and the image emerging here for us of the joyful mourning, and the image he uses is of a whimpering child being comforted. And this is what the experience is for us. And I think it's also how we can begin to distinguish uh, that which is a genuine mourning uh, from something that's produced more on an effective level and an emotional level uh, that would be much more akin to sort of our natural sorrow rather than something that is grace-filled or a gift from God that here we begin to see this mixture of deep sorrow for one's sin, but also the comforting grace of God active at the same time. We feel the bitterness of that sin and its sting, but we also feel the comforting hand of God and his mercy. And this is where we see the beauty of it, that uh, that it isn't that the, the monks were simply being harsh with themselves or, uh, or demanding. It's that they began to taste within the depth of their repentance something that was uh, otherworldly in the sense of it being godly, something coming from the hand of God, that they were being given a blessing through something that was counterintuitive you know, through this deep sorrow of mind and heart. Okay, number 56. Tears over our departure produce fear. But when fear gives birth to fearlessness, joy dawns. But when constant joy is obtained, holy love bursts into flower. So, there is this departure, uh, I'm sorry, there are the tears, let me read this again, tears of our departure produce fear. So there is this fear that is uh, at the beginning of this experience of our sorrow for our sin. But when fear gives birth to fearlessness, joy dawns, that when we begin to see the presence of God within the fear that our sin produces, uh, then we begin to experience a, a freedom like no other. Joy dawns upon us, but it's not a worldly joy. It's the joy of the kingdom. And so it becomes a kind of invincible joy that is given to us. 
And he says, but when constant joy is obtained, holy love bursts into flower. So when this kind of joy takes root within our hearts, this joy of the kingdom, this joy of Christ, then uh, this holy love begins to burst into flower, that our love for God begins to take on measures, takes on, take on a measure that is unparalleled to anything that we've experienced before, only because he's cleansed our hearts through allowing us to experience the sorrow over our sin, uh, through giving us the gift of tears. And once this has purified the heart, then that, that the fear that is tied to sin can dissipate. And all we begin to experience is the joy and the love of the kingdom. This is such an important paragraph. And again, I apologize for my distraction here tonight, but this is perhaps one of the more important things within his text, because we've, we've labored through some very difficult uh, readings here with John, including the prison, if you remember, and the, the description of it. And through all these initial uh, writings about this kind of so deep sorrow and contrition. But now what he's telling us is that what emerges from this is a, a gift from God that cannot be taken away from, from us. And a gift that allows us to taste something of eternal joy and eternal love. And so in the minds of the, the fathers, and I think hopefully within our minds and hearts as well, that traveling this difficult path becomes worth the sacrifice that it involves. That there is a, a, an enormous resistance that we have to walking this narrow path. Uh, you remember we've talked before about that word being agon, from which we, we, we get our English word agony. You know, agonize to enter by the narrow gate, strive to enter into the, by the narrow gate. And so to strive to have this kind of contrition, this kind of sorrow, is not going to be an easy thing. In fact, it's going to be something that is agonizing. And this isn't just an Eastern Thing. I think we find this experience and insight in the writings of the, the mystics, in particular the Carmelite mystics, John of the Cross, that this kind of agony of soul, uh, this deep kind of darkness that one might experience is a prelude to being drawn into a deeper intimacy with God. Now, John describes it in a different way. He talks about the dark night of the senses and dark night of the soul and uh, progresses in terms of the darkening that we experience in the intellect, reason, imagination. And when we are drawn simply to walk upon the dark uh, path of faith, and But what is actually taking place there is our being drawn into an experience of God as he is in himself. And I think there's an interesting parallel in this, too. We're being drawn into this experience of the mercy of God as it is in all of its fullness, 
an experience of the joy of the kingdom, the mercy and love of the kingdom as it truly is, not as we imagine it in our own minds, but we pass through this painful experience that is rooted in deep conversion and rooted in this deep hatred of sin and of being allowed to experience it uh, as it is as well. Anthony. So then, this fear is not necessarily wrong and self-focused, is not merely an assault of the enemy, but it is a permitted stage of repentance. Is it like what we call attrition that leads to contrition? I think that's a very good insight, that it isn't simply that it comes something that comes about by the enemy. And we could very easily see it that way, as a temptation, rather than, as John had come to see it, as a gift from God. The enemy can tempt us, I think, when we have not given ourselves over fully to God on this level and allowed him to draw us where he desires to take us in accord with his providence and his will along this path. And that's where we can be tempted. But if we allow him to guide and direct us, then what we experience is this deep consolation and this deep hope that cannot be taken away from us. And think of the freedom that that one that gives one then along the spiritual path and in the spiritual battle and in the trials that we experience in the crosses that we carry. When we've tasted for ourselves, that is, and I know that might have come out a little bit obscure, but when we've tasted for ourselves something of the mercy, the joy, the hope, the, the, this divine sucker that he talks about, this divine consolation, when we begin to experience that and taste it, then there's, we're not going to be pulled away by that which is an illusion or that which is trying to tempt us into disbelieving uh, all that is proclaimed in the gospel. Vicki Nichols wrote right before you, St. John Neumann manifests this gift, particularly when he was a young man. Uh, which gift are you talking about there, Vicki? Just so I'm clear, if you wouldn't mind typing that when you have an opportunity. Or you can even break in without typing in if you'd like, but are you talking about what uh, Rachel had said there? Okay. Yes, I was responding to the person before. Okay, I missed it. Father, can you think of a saint whose life really manifests this gift St. John is speaking about? I'm sure all the saints in some degree experience this, but I mean, where, where was it clearly manifest? Would St. Teresa or St. Therese be examples of this joy. Uh, yeah, you know, I think St. Teresa of Avila in, in particular experienced something of purgatory and the suffering of that, you know, was allowed to experience this in a very concrete kind of way through a mystical experience that then, you know, deepened her level of conversion. Uh, I don't know if I found anyone articulated though in the way that the the desert fathers describe it or certainly in the way that john describes 
the, the path to it. You know, I think I can point to the experiences of various saints going through this or describing it in one way or another, but how John describes it as, you know, because he's willing to guide the monks who are reading this and, and all of us who are reading it today to make us engage in this labor uh, because he sees it as being worthwhile to guide, to show us the path to it and the fruits that it produces. And so uh, I guess the answer to your question is yes and no, that I, I could point to saints who have similar experiences, but no, in the sense of those who describe it, I think it, in as much detail and labor to do so as much as John. Ambrose writes, St. Dominic was said to often weep while keeping vigil, and he was also known to be supernaturally joyful. Right. And so, again, this is, you know, there are a multitude of examples of this, I think, among the saints. Uh, but I think what is of particular value to us in the writing of John is the description of it. Uh, you know, because, uh, again, we have to keep in mind who he was writing for, that he was writing for other monks. And so he wasn't afraid he, he knew that there was already a kind of formation, a commitment to a particular kind of life, a penitential lifestyle. He wasn't afraid then to present to them uh, the picture of this journey and its rawness in an un unvarnished kind of fashion. And this has often been difficult for us, makes it difficult reading for us. It is so raw at times, this idea have experienced this kind of pain of heart uh, that John describes, and that it is like a tilling of a soil, an overturning of the soil of the heart, in order that the, the seed of God's love and life might take deep root within us, and that we might be able to experience that, and again, not just in a notional way, but in a real way. And if we're willing to persevere with John up to this level, it begins we be, again begins to take shape for us. It's you know it's a lot of those these apps now are AI you know they uh, will transform something into a work of art like a photograph into a work of art like a Picasso piece, and you see it begin to come into focus as it's uh, being produced. And uh, this is what came to mind in, in, in reading this, that as we plow our way through John, this image begins to emerge, that what he's pre presenting to us is this path into that which is enduring, and that which is, that comes to us from God. And in some sense is beyond words. And I think this is why John of the Cross uses poetry and then he writes and describes what he first captured in his poetry, because in a sense, it was beyond uh, what we would typically describe in a discursive fashion, that it was only through poetry that he could capture what was going on within his heart. And so John, you know, through these images and stories of these monks and, and what they go through begins to paint this 
portrait for us of what it is to enter into the joy of God, the joy of the kingdom, but also into the state of what he described here as dispassion, a freedom from the passion, a passionless passion. So our, we have one passion, and that's for God. We desire him above all, and this is what drives us, that one can reach this point where there is this freedom from being driven by sin and driven solely by desire for God. And, you know, John certainly has a unique way of describing it. It might not speak to everybody, but I think if you're willing to listen and follow him along, this is what emerges. Another deep poet, Anthony writes, on these themes is the great St. Gregory Narek, doctor of the church. I agree. And I think also St. Ephraim the Syrian uh, draws us in this, the spiritual psalter along this similar path of, of repentance. Uh, that while, you know, expressing the pain of it, also in the words is held this joy of the kingdom that is put forward before us as the greater promise. Okay, so again, you know, I, I don't want to muddy things anymore. Let's go on to what John says here. Uh, 57, drive away with the hand of humility every transitory joy as being unworthy of it, lest by readily admitting it, you receive a wolf instead of a shepherd. So again, read this from the perspective of a monk and who is coming to see what John is describing here, that there is a joy above all joys. There is the joy of living in Christ and experiencing the joy of the kingdom. And that once one begins to see that, that we would drive away with humility as if our judgment would be truer or clearer we would drive away from humility the temptation to take hold of a lesser joy rather than this eternal joy. And again, this is very similar to John of the Cross. When, even when talking about certain kinds of prayers, he says we're going to be tempted to go back to prayers and ways of praying that offered greater consolation and that were actually helpful at various stages in our spiritual life. But we have to resist that temptation because God is drawing us in to something far greater in that experience of the darkness of faith. He's drawing us into this encounter with him as he is in himself. And so John Climacus is saying, don't be tempted to uh, take hold of a lesser joy, even if it seems to be a spiritual one that uh, hold on to humility to allow God to guide you along a path that's in accord with his providence. And this is not an easy thing to do, as you can see. I mean, there's not one of us here, I think, that would, would not be, find ourselves repulsed by this or resistant to it. And I think it's the same is true for anyone who reads John of the Cross deeply, too that there's something not appealing there on an emotional level, 
that's going to make one readily want to embrace it until God allows us to see in faith why, why this is the path forward. He might just give us a little bit of light that allows us to take the step forward that we need. Number 58, do not hasten to divine vision when it is not time for divine vision, that it may pursue and embrace the beauty of your humility and unite with you forever in immaculate marriage. So do not hasten to divine vision when it is not time for it, that we cannot try to create this for ourselves. And again, East or West, all the great writers warn against this of trying to create something for ourselves spiritually that God can only give to us by gift and by preparing the heart in the way that he sees fit, that contemplation, maybe this is the best way of describing it, is a gift. And it's a gift that does not come to everybody in this world. John of the Cross is very clear about this, that we might walk this path that is described by John Climacus or the, the path that is described by St. John of the Cross. And God, for one reason or another, in his providence might choose not to allow us to experience the gift of contemplation to perceive him in the light of his grace as he is in himself, because perhaps in receiving that gift, it might open us up to a potential fall and jeopardize our salvation. And I think we there is kind of danger in our day and age because we, we like to move to things, even in the spiritual life, that provide us a quick route that we can embrace certain forms of prayer that will bring about contemplation. And they might produce a kind of experience of peace of mind or heart on an emotional level, but that we can't equate that with contemplation of God. And we cannot produce that simply by entering into these practices over and over again. They might help prepare the heart and this is what we are called to do, to take hold of the grace that God gives us and to move forward in the spiritual path. But we always have to uh, approach the gifts of God in a spirit of humility. God gives the gifts that he chooses to give to souls and in accord with his wisdom. Cindy Moran writes, how does this apply to the Jesus prayer? Well, again, you know, I think that we are seeking there the stillness and silence where we become uh, completely attentive to God and that there is no impediment uh, that we have within the mind and the heart because of our sin or because of the distraction of our own thoughts or our own imagination. And this might bear great fruit for us spiritually, but does it necessarily mean that we will experience contemplation, that we will be drawn into the most intimate experience with God while in this world? And the answer to that question is no. 
And we have to be at peace with that, that we seek God out of love and we embrace all of these disciplines, whether it's the Jesus prayer or fasting vigils, we foster this penitential spirit, the spirit of compunction. But we, again, we are not doing it for ourselves, but solely out of love for God and to open our minds and our hearts to him as fully as we can. And there can be, you know, this strong element of the self and self-will that uh, permeates the spiritual life and are engaging in certain spiritual disciplines. And this is all part of purification that takes place in the spiritual life. We can just, we can be as willful in the spiritual life as we can be in anything else. And there can be a part of, there can be a kind of petulance within us that wants God to give us what we want or what we think should come about because of our fidelity uh, to him. Anthony. Is constant receptivity, you often mention, or, or overthinking evidence of the faculty of contemplation, but it is turned to an unworthy or self-destructive subject? Well, right, or a kind of impatience, I think, that John describes here, that there's, I think it would be wrong to say that we should not desire contemplation, that that would be our great desire, that we would, again, experience God as it is himself, that we would experience the deepest intimacy with him. But there can be something within us that he describes in this last paragraph, 58, where we want to hasten that divine vision, where we want to create it, to speed things up, and that is our downfall. And this is where it's a, it becomes turned in on the self. The, the contemplation becomes turned back again upon oneself rather than in focus, in humility, staying focused upon God. Now, it, you know, admittedly, you know, words fell me through this because all of what John is describing here comes only through experience. Uh, but, you know, I think he's consistent here with what the other saints and uh, the other Desert Fathers write about, that we cannot leap up the ladder, you know, in one single bound or at the, a speed that we want, uh, nor can we produce the gifts of God simply by doing these things. We could fall back into a kind of Phariseeism uh, very easily, that if we do just do the right things, if we if we look at the ladder of divine ascent as, uh, you know, an instruction manual, that if I just do everything right, then what it's going to lead me to is contemplation. Well, then we have to say, no, you know, again, this is within is within God's purview. What in his providence he sees is for the salvation of our souls. And we cannot demand that or hasten it. It's a challenging thing, but I think important for us to understand, you know, that we don't allow the self 
to intrude on our pursuit of love and pursuit of God. That what we've been shown is this divine love is selfless and self-emptying, canonic, cruciform. And we can, can often alter it in our self-centeredness into something different. And so love is a very powerful thing, but when it becomes disordered, say, let's make it very concrete in relationships or in marriages, you know, say if it becomes obsessive or controlling, then it can be something that's very destructive rather than life-giving. And in our relationship with God, uh, our spiritual life can take on certain distortions if we are trying to manipulate God into responding to us in a way that we desire, fulfilling the hopes that we have rather than what he desires for us. Any further comments on this? This is solid food, and uh, beyond that, it's also very challenging. Uh, but uh, again, you know, I, I think the fruit of it for us in the spiritual life uh, is, and the benefit of it is hard to estimate uh, in the sense of our day-to-day -day struggle and fostering this true and deep desire for God and to live in accord with his will. And to have these things in our minds, in our hearts, from having meditated upon them, uh, can keep us from falling into, into error or keep us from distorting that relationship. We still have to struggle uh, to love and to love, you know, in this Christ-like way. Um, but no, knowing the things that John describes here, I think, can keep us from turning back in upon ourselves. So that brings us to 8.30. And so we'll wrap things up there for tonight. Again, I apologize for all the early distractions and running in and out of the room. Uh, now I know what uh, parents go through, <laughs> uh, you know, when you're wrestling uh, a toddler. And to be honest with you, that's what it's been like these two weeks. So uh, it's been humbling. You know, he's he's been my spiritual director these past two weeks. You know, I've been obedient to him more than he's been obedient to me. And uh, I don't I hope that doesn't last, but uh, it's been teaching me a lot. So uh, when we stop there, as always, with, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.